Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. There is something about a new year that, um, that gives us a sense of a fresh start, kind of a clean slate. Whatever the old year brought us and however it ended up and you know, whatever highs and lows you might have gone through, there's, there seems to be this sense just by one day, all of a sudden, there's a fresh start. There's a new opportunity going on here. Um, and believe it or not, maybe you guys don't do this, but most people do still make New Year's resolutions. Uh, and in fact, I was reading, I think it was uh, USA Today, about 60% of the population uh, in, in the United States still makes New Year's resolutions, even though only about 17% of that 60% will actually fulfill them. Um, in fact, it's really interesting. Do you, anybody have any idea what the single greatest month of new enrollments at gyms is in. Anybody want to take a wild guess on that one? Yeah, January. It's the single biggest month for new gym memberships. Incidentally, it is also, in our history, kind of the month that attendance takes a spike. There's something about a new year that says, okay, whatever I did last year, it's time to make something different, time to go a different direction. Um, The thing is that very often people make New Year's resolutions and very few succeed at them. And the reason for that is is because usually it's concerned with just changing behavior. And and you work real hard at it maybe for a week, maybe two, but after a while the interest wears off and you just kind of go back to the same old patterns. And so we kind of go through this cycle year after year after year. And like this morning when we kind of took that poll earlier, most people just say, why even bother? (laughs) Because this time next year, I'm going to be in the same place, doing the same thing, doing the same bad behaviors, you know, whatever it is. What I want to share with you this morning, and what I'm excited about, is talking about something bigger than just changing your behavior. And it really has to do with the heart of what I believe God has for each and every one of us. And that is a personal vision. Because see, a vision is much bigger than just changing some behavior. In fact, if you have a clear vision of what it is God wants you to do with your life then decision-making and behavior changing becomes a lot easier because you start to make decisions based on where the direction of your life is heading because your vision helps set the direction for your life. And once you know the direction you're heading, it's real easy to say, well, that doesn't head me in the right direction. It makes it much easier to make decisions. And that's why vision is so important, developing a personal vision. And sometimes when people hear the word vision, you know, it kind of gets really, oh, that gets too nervous and scary and overwhelming and all that. Vision is simply this. At its simplest, a vision is just a picture of what you would want your life to look like in the future. That's really all it is. And everybody has them. Everybody has dreams and, 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 and kind of a picture of where you want to end up somewhere in life. It may not be clearly defined, but you all have them. You have kind of a picture of what you want your family to look like. You have a picture of what you want your marriage to look like. It may not be happening, but you've got a picture. And, and the, the deal is this. I believe that God has a vision for each and every one of our lives. That your heavenly Father has designed you and gifted you and placed you in such a way and in such a place and at such a time to fulfill part of what He is doing in this world. And when you get that, when you discover that, when you get that sense of God's vision for your life, that changes everything. That really begins an extreme makeover. And so what I'd like you to do is start thinking a little bit as we go through this in the next month, next four weeks or so, is just start thinking about what do you want your life to look like one year from now? Just start off small. One year from now, what does a picture of your life look like? Ten years from now. 
And the reason is because I want you to be able to come to the end of your life and be able to look back and say, I did the thing God designed me to do. I fulfilled the vision that he had for my life. Now, it may not be clearly defined for you. Maybe you've had vision. Maybe you've had hopes and dreams that have all been dashed and you've just kind of given up on the whole idea. Or maybe you set your goals and your vision a little bit too low and you easily achieved it and now you're thinking, okay, so now what do I do? Just coast for the rest of my life? Maybe you're thinking, it's too late for me. Eh, My opportunities passed by long ago. I'm just kind of stuck in this rut and this is what I got and this is what it's going to be. Or some of you might be thinking, you know, I'm so young, I don't have to think about vision. I just, you know, just do what I want to do today. You know, that's all I need. I want to tell you, God has a vision for your life. And the more clearly you establish that and get a hold of it, the more it's going to direct all that you do in your life. And the more it's going to ease your decision-making process. And it's never too early and it's never too late to discover the vision that God has for your life. Because I do believe that God has a design and a vision for each and every life here today. And in the next four weeks, we're going to look at how do you discover that? How do you develop that? How do you maintain God's vision for your own life? And we're going to do it by looking through a really good example that we have in the Old Testament, a guy named Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a guy that once he discovered God's vision for his life, it changed everything. And... um, And as you look at his life, you're going to find out a little bit about how you develop this. How do you discover God's vision for your life? And that's what we're going to look at this morning, just seeing how a vision is born. How to see beyond the way things are now to get a picture of what they could and should be in the future. And and Nehemiah is a great example of this. And and you really do need to read Nehemiah. I mean, probably a lot of people here think, Nehemiah, I've never heard of that guy. Okay, there's a book in the Bible named Nehemiah. It is named after a man named Nehemiah. And you need to know this, okay? Because someday you're going to stand in heaven and Nehemiah is going to come up to you and say, so what did you think of my book? <laughs> and you're going to say, I didn't know you wrote one. Okay? So you need to know this stuff. If nothing else, you don't want to have to face him and say, you know, I never read it. I'm sorry, okay? Okay, so let me give you a little bit of historical context because to really understand what happens in his life, you need to know the setting that he's in. Um, Nehemiah lived around 445 to 450 BC. Okay? And you're thinking to yourself, okay, how can a guy that lived 2,450 years ago have any bearing on my life today? Well, you're going to discover that. He's living in a city called Susa. Susa is the capital of the Persian Empire. Now, Nehemiah is a Hebrew, he's a Jew, but he's living a thousand miles away from Jerusalem in a city called Susa. And the reason he is living there goes back to about 135 years or so earlier, 140 years earlier. Because what happened to the nation of Israel that had peaked under the rule of King David and then maybe sustained a little bit under the rule of King Solomon started to fall apart. And about, you know, a little bit later after Solomon's death, the the kingdom actually divided into two halves and, and slowly continued to decline, to continue to decline, continue to decline until somewhere... Around 586, 585 B.C., the Babylonian Empire came in through the whole area, wiped out everybody, overtook everything, and established the Babylonian Empire. And what they did when they overthrew Jerusalem, the capital of Judea, is they took a huge chunk of people, hundreds of people, and took them out of Jerusalem and moved them all the way back to their hometown, back to Babylonia. And they took these people in exile because these were kind of the, it was usually the more um, influential and powerful and they wanted to take their power away from them. So they moved them away from where they could cause any problems for the empire. 
Well, what happened eventually down the road is the Babylonians, as great and powerful as they were, got overtaken by the Assyrians. Now the Assyrians are in charge. And now back in Assyria, in, in Persia, in this city called Susa, there is a man named Nehemiah. Now what happened when the Assyrians took over is the, the, the Assyrian king decided to let some of those exiles begin to make their way back. And so for the last hundred years or so, slowly people have been making their way back from the captivity and the exile over in Assyria and Babylonia and making their way back to Jerusalem. And slowly this, you know, this exodus has become back to Jerusalem, this group of people. You know, just a little at a time, a little at a time. And there's about three different great movements back, back to Jerusalem. Not Nehemiah. Nehemiah is still in Susa. Okay? He's left behind. And the reason he is left behind is he has found himself a pretty good job. See, he finds himself, he is what is called the cupbearer to the king. Now that is more than just a butler. Okay? The job that Nehemiah had was very, very important. He was like the secret service and, and a cabinet member all rolled into one. His job was to taste the wine. Not a bad gig. Okay? But it wasn't to see how good the wine was. The reason he tasted the wine was to make sure it wasn't poisoned. See, he ate all the king's food. He ate all the, drank all the king's wine. He'd get it before the king did. Only because if it had been poisoned, he'd be killed, not the king. So it's a pretty good job as long as there's no assassination attempts made on the king. So that's Nehemiah's job. Now the deal is, because of that position, it's kind of an elevated position. And, and very often, those who served in that position became confidants to the king. Uh, they became almost like a number two. In fact, there's, historically, there are some uh, cupbearers who actually rose to the second position of authority in a kingdom, in the ancient world. And so that's his position. He's risen up the ranks. He is a trusted advisor. He is the uh, secret service agent to the king. He's a personal bodyguard. He has all of those things. And so he has gotten himself into a pretty good position. He is not in a place anywhere where he is thinking at all about God's vision for his life. Because he's got it figured out. Life is good. Good food, good wine, everything's going smooth. You know, everybody loves the king, so life is good for me. That's his life now. And everything is going really, really good. And the last thing he is thinking about is what God might want for his life. He's just thinking about his next meal. Until one day, he gets some troubling news. And the news that he gets is so troubling that it begins to grip his heart. It, it just grabs him like nothing has ever grabbed him before. And that is very often how a vision begins. You see something, you hear something, and it begins with this holy unrest. The vision starts with a sense that things are not the way they're supposed to be. For Nehemiah, it begins with his brother's visit coming from Jerusalem with a few other guys. Hanani, he writes, one of my brothers came from Judah with some of the other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. He wants to know, how are things going back home? Now, he's never been there that we know of. He was pretty much born and raised. But he has a sense of his, of his heritage. He has a sense of, of being a part of God's people. And he wants to know, how are things going back home? How are things back in the old country? And the news that he gets is not very good. They tell him, those who survived the exile are in great trouble and great disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. Things are not well back home. The walls are in ruins. Everything's still a mess. The people are, are discouraged. They're vulnerable. They're broken. 
But it's not just the physical brokenness of the gates and the walls. And it's not just the emotional brokenness of the people and the discouragement and the helplessness and vulnerability. There's something even deeper going on. And this is the thing that Nehemiah knows, that it is God's people who are at risk. God's redemptive community. This group of people that God has chosen to demonstrate and show his love for them, his covenantal love for them, his care and his compassion, his plan, in fact, for the redemption of all humanity. All humanity is placed within this group of people. And when he hears about things being as bad as they are, it's not just that physically things are kind of not going so well. It's that the whole plan of God's plan for humanity is at risk. And that's what bothers him more than anything else. The brokenness of the people begins to break his own heart. And that's what happens. That's usually where a vision begins. There is a sense at which things are not the way they should be. And it grips you. You experience something in your own life or you see something happen to somebody else or you hear something, hear something that happens and you say, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And it grips him so much. It says that when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. He heard the news and it wasn't just, well, gee, that's so sad. I'm really sorry to hear that. Somebody ought to do something about that. It began to grip his own heart. And it got to a point where it became personal. I need to do something about this. Or in the words of that great theologian, Pope I, you, you know Pope I? <laughs> You'll get it. Remember, there were two, Popeye made two great contributions to theological thinking in our day, okay? The first one was, he always used to say, I am's what I am's. Remember that? I, I'm, not, I'm just who I am. I'm just who I am. I can't be somebody else. I am who I am, okay? That is a great theological statement. But he had a second theological contribution. And he used to say this all the time. Like when, when olive oil would get in trouble, and, and she was no great shakes. I don't know what he saw in her, but for some reason, you know, there was an attraction. I don't know. But, you know, olive oil would be in trouble, you know, or something would be going wrong, or Brutus would be beating up on her, trying to steal a kiss or something, I don't know. And Popeye would finally get to the point where he would say, remember what he would say? That's all I can stands, I can't stands no more. That's what he would say. That's all I can stands, I can't stands no more. In other words, I've, I can't stand on the sidelines anymore, I can't just step, sit by and watch this happen. I got to do something. It's all I can stands, I can't stands no more. That is a great theological statement because it is the heart of somebody who decides to get off the bench and get in the game. Let me ask you, is there anything in your life, anything in your circle of friends, anything in your circumstances, in your little sphere of influence that you look at and you say, that's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. Anything? Does anything grip you like that? In fact, maybe you need some practice. Okay, let's, let's, let's just try that sentence all together, okay? Just, you know, it'll make you feel better, all right? Trust me on this one, okay? Ready? That's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. Okay, some of you didn't say it. And it's not going to do you any good unless you do. And we're going to keep saying it until everybody here does it. So check on the person next to you, okay? One more time, let's try it. That's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. There has got to be something in your life that so grips you that you say, I'm not going to stand on the sidelines. 
That's not the way it's supposed to be. It's got to change. And I got to be the one to be a part of it. Because if there's nothing in your life that grips you, if there's nothing in your life that grabs your heart and makes you break, if there's nothing that brings that kind of a passionate response or emotional reaction at all, then you're just dead. Nehemiah hears of the trouble of God's people. And it's not just that the walls are not built. It's something much, much deeper because he knows that's not the way it's supposed to be. And it grips him to the point where he says, I just sat down and wept. I couldn't do anything else. Does anything grip your heart like that? Good friend of Northgate, Tom Egan, president of Hope for Kids International, tells the story, told it first time he came back from his visit to Uganda. And now we saw so many young children who had no means of supporting themselves because their parents had died because of the AIDS epidemic going through Uganda, all of Africa for the most part. And he remembers, he talked about seeing these kids and, and seeing the smiles on their faces and the desires and, and the hearing their prayers. And, 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 he, and he prayed this prayer. In fact, it's the title of his new book. He prayed the prayer, Lord, why don't you hear their prayers? It gripped him. There was something that wasn't right. And his prayer with God, why don't you hear their prayers? And he began to hear God's voice saying, I have, and you're the solution. And that's how a vision is born. It comes with the sense that things are not the way they're supposed to be. What differences do you see in the world around you that you know what is, is not what ought to be? Not what should be. Not what could be. It might be something as simple as as your family relationships. And things are not right. It might be in your friendships, your relationships. It might be your career. It might be your finances. It might be a number of things. It might be the very thing that brought you here this morning. Because there's been emptiness and, and a hole in your life that you know you have not addressed or you've not addressed it in a long time. And it's been nagging away at you. And finally you decided, you know, it's time to do something. And that's what brought you here this morning. I don't know, but I do know this. You will never discover God's vision for your life if nothing grips you. And it is too easy to switch channels and get distracted and not pay attention. You watch on TV and the news or you see something, you know, a plea for Christian children's fund or something and you watch the suffering and you say, gee, that's too bad. And then you switch channels because you don't like feeling bad. Or something bothers you and you just go play Xbox 360 because then you don't have to think about it anymore. See, we're really good at diverting our attention so we don't have to feel bad about things. But I think sometimes God puts that thing in our path and in our heart so that we will feel bad enough to do something about it. Because that's how vision is born. And it is way too easy in our society to switch channels and distract ourselves and take on something else so we don't have to think about it. And all the while, God is saying, would you pay attention? Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And you need to get to a point that you will say, It's all I can stand. I can't stand it anymore. There is a holy unrest that begins to settle into your heart. And it's not, it's somebody else's problem. It's mine. 
Now here's the thing with that holy unrest. What it does is it creates a building sense of urgency about it. That you begin to feel like, okay, I've got to do something and I've got to do something now. But don't be too hasty because there's something else that needs to happen with a vision. Often a vision needs refining. And the refining process happens through a time of urgent prayer. Nehemiah is moved by the need, but he doesn't act on impulse. Because it's real easy to do something on impulse. You know, write a check, send it off. Okay, now I don't have to feel bad about it anymore. No, he took this thing to heart and he began to pray about it. That's what he did. He said, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. For some days he did this. In fact, you find out a little bit later in the story, four months worth, day in and day out, praying over this thing. Because it began to grip his heart. And it wasn't casual, flippant, mindless prayer. You know, Lord, bless those people. You know, amen. But it was a deep, intense, passionate wrestling with with what is and what ought to be and where my place fits in all of this. And sometimes that prayer time feels like a waste of time. It feels like you just put on hold and nothing's happening. I remember, I remember the very, very beginnings before we even started this church. I mean, God began to put something on my heart about being a church that would reach out to unchurched people, that would be accessible and understandable, where where the Word of God would be taught in a way that people who maybe had no Bible background could understand it and could discover what God had for their life, to be the kind of church where people would be loved, accepted, and forgiven just the way that they are. They didn't have to become something they weren't. But in that kind of church, and that thing began to burn on my heart. And I finally got to the point, and we shared it with Betty, and we prayed a lot over it, and we finally said, this is what God was calling me to do. This is the vision He has for my life. And we made that decision, and we said, okay, then let's do it. And the minute we made that decision, everything got put on hold for a whole year. (laughs) All the circumstances that looked like they were falling into place, everything that looked like it was about to happen, Boom, it all stopped. And for a whole year, it just felt like everything was just kind of put on hold. I hate being put on hold. I hate to wait. I view a trip to Home Depot as a personal challenge. Because I hate waiting. But that's what God often does. He gives us a glimpse of the vision, but there's a lag time between what we think we might be called to do and the time we actually begin doing it. And part of the reason for that is this time of thinking it through, of praying it through. And I thought I was ready to go a year ahead of time. And I realized I wasn't after that year. See, God's vision for your life is going to be a part of His bigger vision for all humanity. And that's why prayer becomes so important. Because it's in prayer that we get God-focused. It's in prayer that we come into alignment with what God is doing. Because it might be a good idea, but not a God idea. And so part of what I've got to do is I've got to pray and say, okay, how does this fit into God's big picture? Andy Stanley writes about this in his book, appropriately titled Visioneering. He writes this. There will always be alignment between a divinely originated vision and God's master plan for this age. There will always be a correlation between what God has put in an individual's heart to do and what he is up to in the world at large. Like a good father, our heavenly father has a vision for each of his children, a vision that lends support to his work in this world. All divinely inspired visions are in some way tied to God's master plan. 
whether it is loving your wife, investing in your kids, witnessing to your neighbor, launching a new ministry, or starting a company, every divinely placed burden has a link to the bigger picture. As a believer, there is a larger, more encompassing context for everything that you do. If the idea or burden you are mulling over is from God, there will be an overt connection between it and God's providential will. It will become apparent how the thing you felt, feel compelled to do connects with what God is up to in this generation. And that's where prayer comes in. Prayer is where I wrestle with that. Okay, so God, where does this fit in your plan? Where does this fit in your work in this world? What is my part in all of this? And that's what prayer does. It keeps us God-focused. It brings our vision into alignment with His. And I begin to pray, pray prayers like, Lord, let me see people around me the way you see them. Lord, I want to be bothered by the things that bother you. I want to concern for the things that concern you. I want to, I want to look at this world through your eyes. I want to see where, what you are doing so that I can do my part in making it happen. And very often that lag time is part of the process in which God refines the vision. And it becomes clearer and clearer to you. And the other thing that it does through the prayer time is it reminds me of my absolute dependence on Him. Because any God-given vision is probably going to feel very overwhelming to you. It's going to be beyond anything you could do on your own. And that's the point. Because it's not your vision for your life. It's God's vision for your life. And so he prays. God of heaven, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night. Now, he is not trying to get God to do something. He's not buttering him up. He's not trying to sweet talk God. And some, he's just simply reminding himself that this is the God of covenant love. This is the God of all compassion. This is the God who loves this world and wants to redeem humanity. This is the God who cares about his creation. This is the God who is powerful and awesome and will do great things to make sure that it happens. And that's what he's doing. He is wrestling with this whole thing. He's looking at his own weaknesses and own frailties and his own abilities, but he's remembering it's not about me. This is God's vision. And that's what happens during the waiting time. It is time for urgent prayer. And again, let me ask you, is there anything that moves you to that kind of prayer? Is there anything that grips you so much? Is there anybody in your life that you look at and you say, you know, it's not the way it's supposed to be. And you begin praying, God, what could I do to make a difference? There's another thing that happens during the waiting time. It's that vision begins to take on personal nature, a personal responsibility. It becomes more and more clear, this is something I have got to do. This is the thing that God created me to do. Because as important as the vision that God has for you to fulfill is the kind of person he wants you to become. And it's both. Vision is not just about doing great things for God. It is also about the kind of person you become through the process. And we have countless examples, countless examples in our day and all through history of people who had grand visions and did great things for God but ended up on the junk pile of moral failure because of scandal. 
because they thought their grand vision and their great success at fulfilling the vision kept them above it all. And you cannot fulfill God's vision for your life from a position of superiority. What you find instead in Nehemiah is a humility that he understands the problem, but he also understands himself. That he is just as much a part of the problem as anybody else. Listen to a part of his prayer. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Now, again, Nehemiah is living a thousand miles away. He wasn't even born when all this stuff happened. He had nothing to do with the fall of Jerusalem. He wasn't part of that rebellion and disobedience to God. He wasn't part of that. You know, he, wasn't, he had nothing to do with all that. He's born centuries later. A thousand miles away. But he understands something. He understands, I am just as guilty as anybody else. I am just as much a part of the problem of this world as anybody else. Lord, I'm guilty. I may not have been there back then. But here today, I'm just as bad. He personally identifies with his people. He knows the truth about the situation. The situation happened because of Israel's rebellion and the refusal, the refusal to honor God. In fact, they acted in direct opposite of the way God wanted them as a people. And that was why they ended up where they did. And Nehemiah knows the truth about it. That's where the problem lies. And the problem lies in me. That same darkness is in me. That same rebellious nature is in me. And it's very similar to the words of the Apostle Paul that he wrote to Timothy. He said, this is why he's saying that it's worthy of full acceptance. Christ died to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And that's the deal. That's the deal. We need to understand that every one of us are a part of the problem. If we're going to become a part of the solution, we need to understand we too are a part of the problem. And I wonder sometimes how many people reject Christianity simply because they are repelled by the behavior of Christians. That's the kind of stuff that breaks my heart. that I watch some things that people do in the name of God, things people do in the name of Christianity, and I just say, God, how does that win anybody for your kingdom? In our self-righteous protests and our condemning attitudes and behaviors, you cannot fulfill God's vision for your life from a position of superiority. Nehemiah understands. And what he does, really what he does, is what Jesus would do 450 years later when God himself emptied himself of all of his divine nature to become a man, to identify with a fallen human race, to live life on our terms, to deal with the day-to-day struggles that we deal with, not with failure, but with success. But that's really what Nehemiah is doing. He's saying, I am a part of this too. I'm in on this as well. And if I'm going to be a part of the solution, I need to recognize I'm a part of the problem. 
And it's what Paul wrote to the Philippian church after, years after Jesus had ascended when he said, have this same attitude in you that Christ Jesus had. Became humble, a servant. See, it's in his humility that he sees the opportunity. He is praying day after day after day. Day and night he is praying, Lord, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And here's where we find out where he was. He says, I was cupbearer to the king. What he realized in his prayer was, there's an opportunity here. And that's the other thing that happens with vision. What happens with vision, once it begins to grip your heart and you pray through it and you begin to take it on as a personal thing, what you start to do is you look for and you plan for opportunities because that's what vision does. It all of a sudden opens your eyes for all kinds of opportunity. Now, it took four months. It was four months of day and night praying. But after four months, an opportunity opens up. We're told later on, in the following spring, now the following spring, that's four months later, over four months later, from the first time that he heard about the problem till the time that actually he was able to do anything about it. It's been four months. But in four months, he's been praying that same prayer. Did you notice the prayer? Give your servant success today. Every day. Lord, is today the day? Lord, give me opportunity today. Lord, please, could today be the opportunity? Lord, open a door today. For four months, he is praying for today. And today finally comes. Because Nehemiah is in a unique position. Because he is cupbearer to the king, he is the only Jew that has complete face time on a daily basis with the king. The only one. He is in a unique position. There is nobody else to complete the case for the Jews. There is nobody else to complete the case for Jerusalem. There's no one else who can intercede. There is nobody else. He is the only guy. And he's the only guy who has that kind of face time with the king. And he recognizes this is an opportunity. And so for four months, he prays and prays and prays. Lord, give me the opportunity. Give me the opportunity. And one day it opens up. I was serving the king as wine. I had appeared, I'd never appeared sad in his presence before this time. So the king asked me, why are you so sad? You look like a man with deep troubles. For four months, he's been trying to cover up the heartbreak in his heart. And he can't anymore. And the king sees it. And he says, here's the trouble. My people are in disarray. They're discouraged, they're broken, they've got no protection, they're vulnerable to enemy attack, they've got no way of protecting themselves. And even though I'm a thousand miles away, it breaks my heart, I want to do something about it. And so it says, with a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it please your majesty, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city. Four months of waiting, four months of praying, four months of planning, And the opportunity arises. And because he is looking for it and has been looking for it for four months, he jumps on it. And what is interesting is that God has been working behind the scenes that whole four-month time. Nehemiah didn't see it, didn't recognize it. He planned for it, he prepared for it, he prayed for it. He had all kinds of ideas about what it was going to take to make this happen. And he just kept looking for the opportunity, looking for the opportunity. And in the meantime, God was putting everything in place. Because when he asks... The king grants him his wish. And better than that, better than that, he also says, well, king, as long as we're at it, 
you know, I got to go through some dangerous territory between here and Jerusalem. So could you kind of give me letters of safe passage? Because you're in charge of that whole area. If you can make sure that I get there safely, that would be great. And, and, and by the way, I know that you happen to have your own forest of trees. And we're going to need some wood to build the gate. So if you don't mind, you know, could we get some wood from you too, from your forest on my way through? Do you mind if we stop and pick up some wood and bring it with us? And, and you know, it really would be nice. It really would be nice if we could have some kind of an armed escort. Because, you know, the roads are dangerous this time of year. And the king gives him every one of those things. Not only does he get the freedom to go to Jerusalem to start rebuilding the wall, he gets the wood, he gets the bodyguards, he gets the letters of passage, he gets more than he asked for at first because he was praying and waiting and planning and when God gave the opportunity, he jumped on it. And he writes, And because of the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. See, you have no idea what God is doing behind the scenes in your life right now. You have no idea what he's doing with the people that you come in contact with every day. You have no idea how he is developing opportunities for you. And if you don't discover his vision, you'll never recognize the opportunities. But if you will set your mind in that direction, if you will make those kinds of prayers, if you will begin to look for opportunities, God will open up the doors. And you will discover something that you never thought possible. And you will begin to fulfill God's vision for your life. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Benicia, California.